come to a special part of our service. I want to introduce to you Christopher and Amanda Edmond. Would you welcome them this morning? And this little guy gets special introduction. This is Matthias. He's uh, just about four months old, and he was really good. I took care of him a little bit, and um, I didn't drop him or anything. It was wonderful. So, but my arm is sore. I was like, you know, I'm not used to holding baby like that. So uh, we are super glad that you guys are both here. Uh, Christopher and Amanda uh, were at the previous church that I was at in Dayton, Ohio, and that's how I got to know them. Uh, they are a wonderful couple. The thing I love the most about them, they bring a fresh sense of the presence of God wherever they go. Wherever they are, they, they seek to just bring, you know, kind of how's God working here right now in this moment? And they want others to experience that too. I think as you're here this morning, uh, that's exactly what you'll walk away saying. You know what? He wasn't lying to me when he said they bring a fresh sense uh, of God's presence. So we're really looking forward to hearing about Gabon, about your ministry that you'll be uh, doing there. And uh, we're excited uh, to have you this morning. So I'm going to go back to my duty with this little guy, and uh, we'll let you uh, share about your ministry. Thanks again for uh, coming here this morning. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, good morning. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here worshiping among you here at Hope. Uh, as Pastor Jeff said, uh, my name is Christopher Edmond. This is my wife, Amanda, and son, Matthias. And we have been appointed uh, international workers with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And we are heading to a country called Gabon. Uh, sometimes people might say Gabon. And it's in Africa, right here. Um, right here, right directly on the equator, on the, the west coast in central Africa. Uh, Amanda sometimes refers to this location on the continent as the armpit of Africa, just because of where it's situated. And it's also very hot and sweaty there. It's the, the African jungle, as I said, right on the equator. So that is where we are heading, specifically to a place called Bongolo Hospital. Um, I have visited Bongolo, but I haven't served there previously. Uh, Amanda, however, did serve there as a single for about two years before returning to the States so that we could get married. Uh, so I'm going to let her tell you a little bit more specifically about where we're going. So as Westerners, when we go overseas in a cross-cultural context, our ability to reach the local people is somewhat limited. We're coming from a different language, a different just um, culture growing up, our understanding of how the world works is different. And so the impact we can have can sometimes be hindered when we're in a cross-cultural context. However, if we are able to go and train the local people to reach their own people, we can multiply our efforts um, like exponentially. Um, so that's what Bangal Hospital is really well situated to do. Um, it was a dispensary started in the 70s that grew to be a hospital facility. It's about 158 beds currently. And it now is transitioning to becoming more of a training center where African surgeons, nurses, dentists, midwives, ophthalmologists, and now hopefully in the near future interns um, for like internal medicine can come in and be trained not only in medicine, but also be discipled in their faith so that they can go back out to their regions in Africa or in Gabon to um, reach their people for Christ. Um, so that's kind of what the hospital is there to do. Great. Um, also, just, just to add to that, you may have heard of Bongalo here at Hope because Hope has a partnership with Bongalo in that uh, Pastor Jeff goes, is it once a year? Uh, once a year to serve as a pastor to the missionaries there, which is a really important function. Uh, missionaries do a lot of pouring out, and they don't often have someone who is there to, to provide pastorship to them. And so Jeff has been really instrumental in that, and we thank you for that partnership and allowing him to, to go on that annual basis. So Bongalo has sort of these dual, dual roles um, in providing medical care to people who might not otherwise have good access to it out in the African jungle, and then also in spreading the gospel. Um, so a lot of times when a missionary couple goes overseas, uh, one or the other of them will have a particular role for which the couple is being sent. Um, in our case, we actually both have roles we're going for. for we have uh, specific ministry uh, functions that we'll each be fulfilling. Mine will be called the director of media. And in that capacity, I will be responsible for developing and implementing various forms of uh, technology and media in order to assist with both of those, um, those objectives of the hospital, both providing the medical care through patient education, and then also uh, evangelistic materials to help spread the, the gospel. And I'll let Amanda tell you about what she'll be doing. So I'm a trained nurse, and I had the joy of serving as a nurse there at the hospital, but then mainly focusing as being a professor of nursing at the school there. And I really enjoyed getting to mentor into my 
students and bring them along on their faith journey as well as their journey of learning what nursing is all about and using that as a tool for the kingdom. Um, I also really enjoyed investing in the current staff that are there. Uh, when I got there, it became clear that there hadn't been a lot of investing in just like continuing education or even maybe spiritual development. So it was really um, exciting to be able to kind of walk alongside them and provide um, some Bible studies for them and retreats so, so that they could get away to be refilled. Um, one of the other things I really enjoyed doing was being involved with a um, village ministry about two hours away near the Congo border. And I was able to help with a church plant there. Really enjoyed getting to help church plant in that community. And then also work with some women in town who are actually from other nations in Africa who have come to set up a shop or their trade in town. And a lot of these women are coming from countries that normally would be closed off to us as Americans um, because they're Muslim faith-based countries. But they've come to set up their shop right in our backyard of the hospital. And in fact, there's quite a large mosque in town there. Um, and they're there. And so I really enjoyed being intentional about going to like the same stores each week just to build that relationship and then enjoyed learning to cook with them on a weekly basis. So we got to exchange recipes. So I would learn how to cook, you know, like a whole fish with the head on and the scales and stuff and rice. And they would learn how to um, cook chocolate chip cookies. So it was a good exchange. <laughs> Which they were thrilled about and for good reason. <laughs> So this is what our timeline looks like as we prepare to head to the field. We're with you here today, and uh, we're scheduled to depart in December of this year, December 2018, and we'll be heading to France for language school for me. Amanda already has pretty good French, having spent a couple years uh, there teaching in French, um, but I don't have any French, so I need to learn French in order to be effective there in, the, in my ministry. Um, we have two significant hurdles that we uh, have to trust the Lord to help us overcome between now and then. The first is that I'm engaged in a PhD program right now, uh, where we live right now in the Dayton, Ohio area, and so I need to complete that um, before we can head over. And then the second is raising financial support. Um, you heard your pastor mention the uh, Great Commission Fund uh, earlier today, and the Great Commission Fund is a great mechanism that the Alliance has used for a long time to support a variety of missionaries in a lot of different places around the world. We are actually a part of a uh, relatively new category of missionaries in the Alliance, which are not supported out of the Great Commission Fund. We, in fact, are responsible for raising our own support. So we'll do that through personal contacts and through speaking engagements like this one. Um, so we covet your prayers for both of these, uh, these hurdles that we have to overcome before heading, to the, uh, heading overseas. Um, we also have a website here that's kind of a central hub for all of our updates and materials, surrenderandfollow.com. This has become kind of our, our theme and mantra as we prepare to head overseas. We are surrendering and following as the Lord leads. And you, you can contact us at edmunds at surrenderandfollow.com by email. We have a table out in the cafe out here uh, with a variety of materials. We've got some pamphlets you can take with you um, that, that have all this information in a form you can, you can take home. And then also some prayer cards with a tiny little picture of us on them. So please, if you're at all interested in partnering with us in any of these ways, uh, prayer, financially, even just uh, talking a little bit about what, what God is doing, we would love to meet you. I'd uh, love to have you uh, grab any of those materials. That said, um, I've heard a lot of different missionaries speak in a lot of different places, uh, probably many of you have as well. And I've found that in my experience, the, the, the talks that have been most impactful for me and most helpful in, in my own spiritual growth on my own journey have been those in which the presenter has used about 10% of their time to answer the, the who, what, when, where questions about what they'll be doing, telling me who they are and what it is that they will be doing. And then the other 90% of the time, with a much greater emphasis on who God is and what they've seen God doing. Uh, sometimes this comes out of their capacity as missionaries, their experience as missionaries, and sometimes it doesn't. But it's been most impactful when that is what they have brought, and that's what I've been able to hear, particularly when that message that they're bringing is one that's been prayed over and uh, specifically something that they feel like uh, God has, has directed them to share with this particular body. So that's the case today. Um, having gone through those questions and rapid-fired those answers at you, um, I leave the materials at the table to, to answer anything else you may have. Again, feel free to meet with us afterwards. We'll be out there. But we're going to devote the rest of our time today. I'm going to hand things off to Amanda. And uh, I invite you to, to really buckle in and focus up here because I can, I can tell you with full confidence that what she has to share with you today is something that the Lord has provided uh, as, as a word for you here at Hope Church.
Thank you. As Christopher said, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, it was about the end of my first term in Gabon when I felt like the Lord was like, Amanda, I want you to study Ezekiel, and I want you to study it in great detail. And my first thought was, where's Ezekiel? Second thought was, in detail, that's not really how I roll. I really am a big picture person. I have a, a lot of struggles when I have to dial down in into the minutiae. I would really be a terrible accountant. Um, but I love thinking in big, broad strokes. So when the Lord led me to do this, I thought, well, this isn't really my forte, but I'll buckle up and we'll study Ezekiel. Um, and I'm so glad he did. Because out of that study, I've really come to cherish the book of Ezekiel. And in learning more of the Lord's heart for us and his character out of Ezekiel, it really has become the hallmark for Christopher and I and our calling and passion, both for overseas and in just the season where we're in the U.S. And you know, I don't think it's any accident that our paths are crossing here today. I really believe that even four years ago or whenever it was that the Lord sat me down and started really digging deep into the scripture, that the Lord knew we would be crossing paths here today at Hope, and that he had your names on his heart when he was teaching me and learning um, these truths out of this passage for me here in Ezekiel. Um, I'll be honest, we have, all three of us actually, felt under somewhat of an attack this week leading up to the service. Um, and I just want to take some time to just pray real quick, um, pray against that, to pray for this, and invite the Lord's Spirit in. Father God, we know that you are an almighty God, and that nothing is beyond your power. We sang about your power this morning. And who you are. You are the Lord Most High. So Father, we, we pray in the name of Jesus to bar any barrier that would want to come into this place to, to block the message you have today. We pray against any distraction, any hindrance, any stumbling on my part, that your, your word would go forth, Father, in power in your name. I pray that you would anoint these lips of clay, and I pray that your word would come forth in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you know anything about Ezekiel, you'll know that he was a prophet in the 6th century BC, and he lived among the exiled Judeans in Babylon during a time of great confusion. So Israel had been divided with Judah getting um, exiled under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. So Ezekiel brings this word to us as an exile with the Judeans, um, and he has this, um, this word from the Lord that he had prophetized to them. Um, Ezekiel did not have a separate group of disciples like Isaiah or Jeremiah to write the text with him. Um, scholars believe that he actually wrote much of the text himself and had a small group of followers that helped edit the text with him as he wrote. So much of this comes from Ezekiel as he's inspired from the Lord. Um, in order to understand Ezekiel, we really need to refresh ourselves on the Old and New Covenant and how that plays out in Scripture. So if you'll walk with me just for a moment, if we start in creation we have God who created this beautiful garden, this paradise, where he wanted to commune and dwell with his people. That was God's highest desire, and his goal for creating man was to dwell and commune with them and to be ministered to by them. So we have this garden and this place where the communion can happen. And what happens? The fall. And because of sin that entered into the world and the hearts of man, that communion was then broken. And so it had to be fixed because this Lord, this Lord Most High, wanted so badly to commune with his people, but there was this brokenness with sin. And so he created the system of what was once the tabernacle and later became the temple, whereby his chosen people could commune with him through a series of rites and rituals and laws that he had prescribed for them. And so then the people had to go through all these rites and rituals in order to commune with their God. And so we see the um, setup of the temple, and I have a diagram here just so you can picture it. And you'll notice that it starts with the most furthest part, which is outside the temple, the furthest away from God, and gradually gets closer and closer and closer to the central part, which is the Holy of Holies. And that is where the presence of the Lord dwelled among his people. The presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and was separated from the rest of the temple and the surrounding city. And in order to commune with God, the Israelites had to bring their sacrifices to the temple, and a high priest had to take it and bring it before the Lord in order to atone for their sin so that the people could then be together again with God and commune with him. 
So we see this God who wanted communion. We see the fall and that communion being broken. And then we see a system of rites and rituals, which is, you know, trying to make it work so that communion can happen, but it's cumbersome. Okay? And then in the New Testament, with the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection, we see where Christ has come to abolish the old law, but to still remember the old law to, in order to demonstrate, I want to commune with my people now, and I'm going to tear down the veil of the Holy of Holies that separates you from my presence so that you can come in and dwell with me and commune with me and be with me. And it's important to note that in that old system of rules and regulations, that veil, that veil is what separated. So much so that the holiness of God had to be separate from the sins of the people and that the high priest could only go in there, that they had to wear a rope tied around their ankle, the high priest did, as they entered in through that veil to minister to the Lord. Because if they were to fall ill or pass out or fall dead, no one, no one else except the high priest could enter behind the veil to the Holy of Holies where the Lord's presence dwelt, where the Lord God Almighty resided. And so they'd have to pull that priest out with that rope. And the priest would actually wear little like bells around their, um, their garments so that you could hear them rustling in the Holy of Holies. And they'd know that if the bells stopped, something had happened and we got a tug on that rope. So that is the level of separation that existed under the old covenant. And then we see Jesus come and tear that veil open. And you know, if you're thinking veil, you might be thinking like a wedding veil material. This was not some tool from Joanne's. I mean, we're talking a three-inch thick curtain, a veil that hung there many meters high that was separating God's presence from the sin of the people because they could not coexist in the same place any longer because of sin. So with that context of Old and New Covenant in mind, we're going to launch into Ezekiel. I'm going to be jumping really quickly through the different passages in Ezekiel. You're welcome to try and follow along. Um, but I just want us to really grasp the whole meaning of the scripture in this today. So as we said, Ezekiel was speaking to a community forced from its home, a people who had broken faith with their God during a time of great confusion. If you remember the history of Israel, you remember that they're flip-flopping back and forth between obedience to God and being faithful to what God had called them to, and then going off and doing their own thing, saying, we don't want a king, we don't want judges, we don't want this, we want our own thing, we want to go after our own gods, you're not providing for us. So Israel's constantly going back and forth in the Old Testament between obedience and disobedience. So this was one of those times of disobedience for the people of Israel. And when they're in this time of disobedience, they came to probably what was an all-time low for them in their history, in that their idol worship had become so prevalent that they were actually performing worship to idols in the temple itself. In the place that was set aside as a sanctuary to the Lord Most High, there were they worshiping their idols. We see in Ezekiel 16, and he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And we're going to see east rep repeated in the scripture, worshiping the sun toward the east. So here they were, God's chosen people. They're the only nation on earth to have the presence of the Lord with them. God had been with them through the Red Sea, through the desert, had been their cloud, pillar of cloud to guide them by day and their pillar of fire to guide them by night. And here is Israel's heart turned against the Lord, so much so that their back is against the presence of the Lord and their faces toward the sun, worshiping it as an idol. In Ezekiel 36, we see that God wants to vindicate the holiness of his name so that the nations will know who he is. Because this, this sin did not just affect Israel. It affected how all the other nations perceived this God most high, this Yahweh of Israel. Is this a God that one can just simply cast aside and choose to worship other little gods? And God says, no, I need to show them who I am and so he restores his glory in Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, 
It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. So what does God do? What is the consequence of Israel's sin? He leaves the temple. The very presence of the Lord Most High, of Yahweh, leaves the central part of their culture, of their inheritance as his chosen people. He leaves the Holy of Holies. He leaves the temple. See in Ezekiel 10. And the God of Israel, the glory of the God of Israel leaves the temple. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And you notice he said, God of Israel, God, the glory of the God of Israel. He's saying, I am a God who knows you. And in the verse there, it uses Lord, all capitals, L-O-R-D, which references the name of God, Yahweh, which is a personal name for God, for the Israelites. He's saying, I am your God. I know you. We are intimate. I'm not just some God that you can just fling around. And I have to leave your presence because of your sin, because you are worshiping other idols in front of my face in my temple. I had never known that God had left his people like that. He had left, his presence had left the temple. And then he goes a step further in Ezekiel 11. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So God says, not only am I going to remove my presence from the temple, but I'm also going to remove myself from the city. And I'm going to sit up on the mountain in the direction of the east where you're trying to worship these other gods so that you will know I'm still here. Even though you reject me, even though you're not worshiping me, I am still there as you face the east worshiping your other idols. But I am not going to be able to dwell and commune with you because of your sin. And Ezekiel uses strong language in these passages. Um, It would be R-rated in a movie today. I'm not going to repeat it for little ears. But if you look at the text, whoring is the lightest that Ezekiel gets. He goes into great detail about how Israel has whored itself against the Lord God Almighty. And so God removes himself from the temple. Scholars estimate it was about 20 years from the time God's presence left the temple to when Israel finally repented. 20 years without communing with the Lord Most High. This chosen people who, amongst all the nations, that was their defining characteristic. You see the Lord's desire to commune with them and wanting them to come back to him throughout that portion of Ezekiel during that 20-year period, that 20-year hiatus. Ezekiel 18, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So go, turn and live. This language is him pleading with his people to turn back so that he can rejoin them and be present with them. And again in Ezekiel 36, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put it within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Even in their disobedience, he pleads with them to come back. Eventually, they do repent. 20 years later, they see the error of their ways and realize that they can't live without communion with their God. And out of that repentance then, and atoning for that sin, God now can re-enter the temple to be with his people because they have atoned for that unrighteousness. In Ezekiel 43, 1 through 5, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, that mountain where he had gone away to just wait for Israel to repent. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple." Once again, the Lord Most High could dwell with his people. Once again, he could live in communion with them, still, albeit with the rituals and the laws and the rites that he had set in place because of his holiness. 
but he could once again dwell with them. So the Lord returned, and what happened next? You know, the scriptures say in Ezekiel that the very high priests who had been designated and set apart as sacred to minister to the Lord had turned their backs and were the actual ones leading the Israelites in the idol worship inside the temple. The very priests who had been designated the people set apart to minister to the Lord in the Holy of Holies were the ones leading in the idol worship right before God's face. So what are the consequences for them? Ezekiel 44 spells it out clearly. But the Levites who went far from me, Levites being the, the priests who had led in the idol worship, going astray from me after their idols when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment. They shall be ministers in my sanctuary. Having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple, they shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore, I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord God, and they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy. But they shall bear their shame and the abominations that they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple, to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. So the consequence wasn't death. The consequence wasn't, you know, their family being taken away or imprisoned for life or their, their livestock being slaughtered. The consequence for them was you get to serve the people. You get to minister in the sanctuary and deal with all the details of sanctuary and worship and how that goes. You get to deal with all the people coming in and bringing their lamb or their goat or their pigeon or their sheep and saying, is this one right? Is this considered a blemish? I don't know if this one meets the weight specifications. Then you have to slaughter all the animals. Then you have to clean up after them and deal with all the of the people coming to you and bickering and talking about how we're going to order the things of the temple. That was their punishment was ministering to people. Their punishment was they can never enter into the Holy of Holies because they had led in the idol worship. Their punishment was to only be relegated to serving the people. In this whole period of rebellion that Israel had during Ezekiel and the idol worship in the temple, there was one line of the priesthood that remained faithful to the Lord Most High. Only one. And that was the sons of Zadok. They hailed from Aaron in the Levitical priesthood line. And they were the priests who had served David and then Solomon. And eventually that line leads to Christ. What a great symbol. But the sons of Zadok were the only line of priests that remained faithful to the Lord. And listen to what the Lord says in Ezekiel 44, 15 about their reward. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me. And it goes on in verse 28. This shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. Their reward, their blessing for remaining faithful to the Lord was that they were the only line of priests who were now able to come and minister to the Lord in the Holy of Holies. The only ones who were permitted to go behind the veil and minister directly to him. They didn't have to deal with all of the, the outer court drama and messiness of ministry and ministering to people. They had the privilege and opportunity and the right to enter in before the Lord Most High himself and minister to him. If we review the Old and New Covenant, we remember that in the Old Covenant, the laws were very strict. Leviticus 21, 23, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And then we see the contrast in the New Covenant in Matthew 27, 50 through 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is after he's been hanging on the cross. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. 
In the new covenant, Christ has gone forth as our great high priest once and for all to tear down that veil into the Holy of Holies so that each one of us may have access to go directly to the Lord and minister to him and not be stuck in the outer courts just doing minister to, ministering to people. We can go in and minister directly to the Lord. Even before the system of the temple and tabernacle were created, the concept of the veil in scripture is seen in, with Moses. Moses was able to enter into this because of his obedience before God. In Exodus 34, 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out he, and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin on Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. Moses was able to go before the Lord without a veil. This is before the tabernacle set up. He was able to go before them because of his righteousness before God. And then he would take that message back to the people. And the glory of the Shekinah glory of the Lord on Moses' face from that communing, from that meeting, was so bright that when he went back to the people, he had to veil his face because the people could not bear to look at him. It was that right from bringing with his Lord. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18 says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Christ's work on the cross has once and for all removed this veil, and he stands as our permanent great high priest. Hebrews 6.20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 4.14-16, 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Through the veil we draw near to the throne of grace. We as heirs with Christ now are able to enter and minister to the Lord and the Holy of Holies. You know, I, I've seen people in Gabon and I see people in the U.S. And, you know, as believers, we may have had that initial veil lifted off so that we can understand scripture and hear from the Lord. But many of us, we live like that veil was never torn. We live like Jesus' death and resurrection has not been powerful enough to tear the veil so that we can communicate or commune with the Lord Most High. We live as though that veil is still in place. It'd be like getting front row seats, box tickets to an OSU game and, you know, all the food you can muster and all the drinks, like soda you want and, you know, front row seats to the action in the end zone. And you're like, oh, no thanks. I'm just going to go over here and clean some toilets in the concession stands. I'll get a glimpse whenever I pop out, you know, in between a toilet or whatever. I, I'm called to serve. I'm just going to keep serving, serving, serving. You got boxy tickets to see the game. No thanks. I'm just going to be serving over here, scrubbing toilets. I mean, we would never do that. Or, you know, a tickets to see you too. And we're like, oh, no thanks. I'm going to go work concession selling popcorn over here. You're not going to watch the concert. No thanks. I'm good. I'm serving. I'm serving at the U2 concert. You know, this whole time we have access to the Lord Most High to commune with Him, and we're out here saying, I'm serving for Jesus, but we never go in. We never go in to 
The whole point, he sent his son to die for us. He, he sent his son to open that veil for us and we never use it. It would be easy to assume from what I'm saying that it's not important for us as believers to minister to outreach. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't misunderstand me. If the reason Christ died was for the veil to be open to you, then the reason Christ ascended was for you to bring others through to the open veil. You may say, I'm not called. I've not received a calling. The New Testament is littered with it. You have a calling and this is it to bring others to know him, to commune with him in whatever you're doing in your everyday routine, to be fishers of men. If you fish, use that for the kingdom. If you teach, use that for the kingdom. If you nurse, use that for the kingdom. If you mow lawns, use that for the kingdom. If you care for children, bring them to the kingdom. Do your everyday for him to bring others to him. Show them how to do this. You don't have to go overseas to be a missionary. You do it by obeying what the Lord has commanded to us in Scripture in your everyday right here. Jesus modeled this for us so well in John 5, where he says he only does that which the Father has asked him to do. You're not asked to do more. But if we're not going to the Holy of Holies to hear from the Lord, we don't know what he's asking of us to do in the first place. You know, it's um, no different in Gabon or here, hearing from the Lord. We don't have some special like Iron Man suit to hear from God just because we're missionaries. You still have to listen. You still have to put your time in, come before him, hear, listen. And he speaks. And then we have the decision to make. Are we going to obey or not? I was coming up the hill from the hospital to lunch at the hospital grounds. There's this really large hill. We call it Cardiac Hill. You know, it's the equator, it's noon, you're hungry, you're thirsty, it's 97% humidity, it's 97 degrees out, got your scrubs on, like sweat rolling down underneath the scrubs, trying to go up that hill for lunch, and you know, I was just so excited to get up, get a shower, get some food, get some water, and God stopped me in my tracks. He's like, you need to turn around, you've got some folder you got to get at your office at the nursing school. I'm like, no, I, I made sure so that this wouldn't happen, like I, I got everything I needed to go home for right now. He's like, no, you need to go. I, I seriously or, argued with the Lord for like five minutes under the pavilion there, whether I was going to turn around or not. And so it's not a good idea to argue with the Lord. So I, I submitted, turned around. Okay, I'd already walked through the whole hospital grounds. You know, it's an open-air hospital. So everyone and literally their mother or family member is sitting there and it's culturally um, expected to greet everyone. So I had just come through the whole, you know, circus. Hello, 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 greeting everyone. And then back through, hello, hello, hello. I was probably thinking, what's this white girl doing? But it got over there, and just as I was heading to the school, I'm going to get that folder. This girl crosses across the courtyard, and literally our paths intersect. Madame Amanda, Madame Amanda, I've been looking for you all morning. My dad took off work this morning to come drive me to the hospital to come find you, to talk to you about nursing at the nursing school. And, you know, I never needed the folder. God knew I never needed the folder. But his purpose and his intention was for that divine appointment because he didn't want me to miss speaking with that young girl. And her father, it was important enough for him that her daughter come and get connected that day that he lost wages that morning at work to bring her to do it. And if I had not obeyed, that, faith, that act of faith they had taken would have gone amiss. And you know, I was hungry and I was thirsty, but that didn't matter at that point. God takes care of our needs when we're obeying him. And in that moment, it was easy for me to see that when he tells us you know, we need to be doing something. He gives us the strength and the ability to do it. And he takes care of our needs and empowers us to have spirit-filled ministry. When we're trying to do it on our own, it's exhausting. When we're trying to minister in the outer courts without going into the holy of holies, we're just scraping from empty barrels, trying to pour into empty people and we've got nothing to give. But when we're going in and getting full, think how easy it is to tip a full bucket into another it just pours out. It just sloshes over and overflows. We need to be going into the Holy of Holies to be filled before we can ever minister outwardly. At the end of Ezekiel, 
We see the very first usage of the word for God, which is the name of God, Jehovah Shammah, in scripture, the very first time. And I think it's so beautiful that it comes at the end of all that Israel's gone through in Ezekiel. It's the Hebrew name for God, meaning God is there. Jehovah Shammah, God is there. And we see at the very end, the very last verse of Ezekiel, Verse 48, 35, and the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. This after this long, arduous journey of several decades of rebelling from the Lord and God's presence leaving the temple and leaving the city and sitting up on the mountain and watching this idol worship take place for 20 more years while Israel decided if they were going to repent or not. And then God coming back and then moving forward, the other nations were around them to say, Jehovah Shammah in that city. The Lord is there in that place. I don't know what it is, but God is there. And I wonder if people looked at you, would they say Jehovah Shammah with that person? God is there with that person. If they saw you at work or school or in the playground or whatever you do in your everyday routine, would they say, Jehovah Shammah? I don't know what it is, but Jehovah Shammah. When they look at hope as a congregation, do they say, Jehovah Shammah with that church? What keeps us from communing with the Lord through the veil? Fear, insecurity, sin? This is what discipleship is for. That's why we're here as the church. The church as a whole, I think, has forgotten to disciple in this area. How to hear from the Lord, how to commune with him. We lead a life group in our home, and it's been one of our greatest pleasures for this season in the U.S., and in fact, Christopher had been leading it long before we got married. But it's a great group of um, people from like post-college all the way up to pushing 40, and we've just really loved coming alongside life with them, the nitty-gritty, elbow-to-elbow, messy doing life together, showing them what this means. And, you know, we've sat around in our discussions in our living room, in our home, and, you know, we've all grown up in the church, but so many have never heard this or don't know it, don't know how to hear from the Lord in prayer, don't know how to listen in prayer, have not experienced God's voice speaking. And I sometimes wonder if, as a church as a whole, in the body of Christ, if it's because as church leaders, we fail to do this on a regular basis ourselves. I don't know you as a congregation, as a body, but I'll just ask the question, when is the last Sunday school or morning service or um, mom's and Todd's group or men's Bible study, men's breakfast, where you've walked away and said, God met us there. Maybe that was this week, and if so, that's wonderful. But if it's like many other churches we've been involved with or experienced, it might have been quite a while. I don't know if you've ever gone without running water. Um, we're blessed in Gabon to have really great running water, actually, and great electricity, which I didn't expect going you know, to a hospital in the middle of the jungle. Um, but there's we've been blessed to have a large river that runs by the hospital and that's fuels the hydroelectric plant. And so we get our water pumped up and we get electricity and it doesn't always work, but it works pretty well. And, um, I think it was the first month I was there. And then the first, the last month before I left where I got a nice little welcome and departing gift where the water and electricity didn't really play well together. Um, so the, I had some sort of lightning issue or something that, melded some wires together. So I had 220 electricity and 110 electricity touching and touching my pipes. So each shower was a really shocking experience as was washing dishes and everything else you would do together. Um, so that took some time to get fixed and figure out where the problem was. And uh, I finally got a little tired of getting shocked. So uh, thought I was twitching too much after using the water, so decided to go to bucket baths. But we had a new, another experience with that here in Dayton just the last couple weeks. Um, we live in a parsonage as we're missionaries and residents at Hillside Chapel, and the water main 
had a break in it um, out by the road. It, it's a large 33-acre property. It was going to be a, you know, got backhoe and the large pipes, bigger than me. I had to come in to fix it. Um, get a text from my husband while I'm at work. He says, we're not going to have water. And we hear from the facilities guy and like, it's going to be about 10 days. Oh, uh, I don't know if any of your veteran moms out there can um, sympathize with this new mama trying to balance a three-month-old who's just started his spit-up phase um, and going back to work full-time and uh, no water in the house. Um, but uh, that's been a good adventure, and it's uh, preparing us for our new lifestyle ahead. But um, when I was going through this, you know, we had our, like we do when we're camping, we had like a hand-washing station, a bottle-washing station, dishwashing station just to keep it all organized and conserve water. But I'd forget, you know, in the middle of the night or going to brush my teeth. That was always the thing. You know, you're just so automatic. I'd turn on the faucet. <sighs> that sucking air sound. I don't know about you, but my heart sinks every time it happens, even though I know there's water available. It's not like we're going to die. But it just comes on. It's just like there's no water. And there's this vacuum, like, sucking sound coming out of the faucet. And as I was preparing and praying um, to give this message specifically here at Hope, I felt like the Lord impressed this vision upon me as I was praying. Um, and it was a row of sinks, just rows and rows and rows of sinks with a mirror and all these faucets. And it was like as if he were taking me to test all the faucets. And I'd like turn one on and just air, no water turn it on. I'd see like, well, they're sprinkled with water. They're wet. What's? And then I'd turn on on and, oh, there's a lot of water. That's really got the water going, good water flow. And then, you know, a few more, just nothing, nothing, no water. And made me think of Ezekiel. We're not plugged into the source. Sometimes it's easy to think, well, at least I look like I am. That's good enough for me. I'm sprinkled with water, so I look like I've got the living water coming through me. But deep down, you may know that if that faucet got turned on, there'd be nothing coming out. You're getting sprinkled from the others who have experienced the Lord next to you. And that's good. You're getting sprinkled from that living water. But you know deep down, when you turn that faucet on, there's just sucking air. What keeps us from going to behind the torn veil to enter into the Holy of Holies? What keeps us from ministering to the Lord? So I was praying into that question. The Lord brought these things to mind, not just for hope, but just as a greater church body as a whole. We are contented to hear from him through the lips of others instead of going directly to his voice. We prefer to just add a flavor of the Lord to our gatherings instead of inviting the whole person of the Lord in. We feel safer in worship services that are only sprinkled with the living water instead of succumbing to the flood of the Holy Spirit. We would rather seek imperfect human reflections of holiness instead of going to the Holy One himself. I'm going to read those again so that they sink in. We are contented to hear from him through the lips of others instead of going directly to his voice, preferring to just add a flavor of the Lord into our gatherings instead of inviting the whole person of the Lord in. We feel safer in worship services that are only sprinkled with the living water instead of succumbing to the flood of the Holy Spirit. We would rather seek imperfect human reflections of holiness instead of going to the Holy One Himself. Whether born out of our flesh that cannot stand the puniness of its own humanity or born out of the jealous father of lies, the enemy, we have somehow deluded ourselves into believing that doing things for God can ever replace time being with God. Therein doth the enemy clasp us in the cage of effort, whereby we sincerely believe we are exhausting ourselves for the kingdom's sake, when in all actuality we are choking ourselves off from the very lifeblood of the kingdom. He did not create you. He did not die for you. He did not conquer death for you. He did not rise again for you. He did not leave the gift of his Holy Spirit to guide you so that you could do for him. He did it so you could be with him. 
were all he has ever wanted. In preparing for this, all I could feel is the love of the Lord for you. Your gaze, your love, your devotion, your intimacy, your vulnerability to walk life hand in hand with you. If you had a bad image of walking life hand in hand with someone, if someone has betrayed you, I pray against that in the name of Jesus because that is not how our God is. Our God stays closer than the brother, is more faithful than the earthly father. He wants to like walk life hand in hand with you. You are the object of his highest affection. Even in your sin-stained state, don't believe the lie that you're too sinful to be loved by him and want to commune with you. Because over those stains of sin, the pouring out of his son's blood has made you not just clean, but holy in his sight. And because of this, you have the opportunity, nay, the right, nay, the inheritance to commune with him in the holy of holies that which was once off limits to even his chosen people, Israel, has now been laid bare before you. How will you respond? As the worship team comes up today, we're going to be singing, Oh, come to the altar. As you pray and ask the Lord to evaluate your soul, does your faucet bring forth water? If he was to come up to you and gently turn that faucet on, would water pour out? Or are you simply sprinkled with water and contented to look like you've got that connection going on, but you really don't deep down? The Father is here for you this morning. Are you content with just the appearance of living water or do you thirst to be flooded and filled by his presence? Somehow in churches, we've gone away from coming to the altar at a service because it's kind of got relegated as, oh, if you have real issues, you go up there. If you really need prayed for, you go up there. Folks, we need to be using the altar as a daily place to come before the Lord and commune with him. Let him talk to you. Let him reach in and touch your heart. Let him speak to you. His word is living. His spirit is an interceder for us. His name has power to save. His name has power to break chains. You do not have to live the way you've always lived. He longs to live in communion with you like that garden in the very beginning. Will you come commune with him?